Business Diplomacy Today, the podcast about international relations and geopolitics from a business perspective. We help you anticipate the changing political and societal trends that influence your business. Welcome. My name is Matthias Katon and I'm your host. Business Diplomacy Today is sponsored by the Indo-German Center for Business Excellence. The center is a think tank, research center and network that connects people and organizations interested in business relations between India and Germany. As an academic institution founded in 2021 at Frankfurt School of Finance and Management, it is independent and impartial, but always close to the real world. To find out more about the center, please go to indogerman.center. And you can also find this link in the show notes. Today's topic will be migration and more specifically the role of businesses and non-governmental organizations in the field of migration. And I'm joined here in this episode by Crystal Ennis, uh, who is a scholar of global political economy and a university lecturer in political economy of the Middle East at Leiden University in the Netherlands. She's also associate editor of the International Studies Review Journal and Vice President of the Association for Gulf and Arabian Peninsula Studies. Her research examines labor and migration governance, job-seeking and economic belonging, and the political economy of dependency on hydrocarbon revenue and foreign labor in the Gulf economies. And that gives you an idea of, uh, I think, the area, the geographical area that she focuses on. Crystal recently co-edited the book The South Asia to Gulf Migration Governance Complex, which was published by Bristol University Press in 2022. And her publications have also appeared in New Political Economy, Global Social Policy, Third World Quarterly, International Journal of Middle East Studies, and the Cambridge Review of International Affairs. Welcome to the show, Crystal. Thank you, Matthias. It's really a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Now, your book mentions the migration governance complex. That sounds terribly complicated, uh, maybe also a bit dangerous. What do you mean by that? <laughs> yes, because of the word complex in the title, it immediately evokes a little a little bit of fear, perhaps. <laughs> But in some ways, it's, well, it's a way to try to understand how the governance of migration happens in practice um, and the variety of different types of, of actors, individuals, peoples, organizations that are involved in migration management and its governance. What we find is that migration, the governance of migration itself is very fragmented. It's not organized or controlled through only one particular um, actor or individual or set of, of regulations or laws. It's rather fragmented and dispersed in a variety of different ways. And so what we do through the book, and by looking at this corridor between South Asia and Gulf uh, economies in particular, but it's something that's wider applicable in other migration corridors, we try to map out what migration governance looks like in practice. And so we call it a complex to try to incorporate the variety of stakeholders and actors that are involved. So to take things 
to a probably very simplistic level for you, when we talk about migration, what, what we mean or what you mean is we're talking about a person or a group of uh, people who, who want to settle in a different country permanently, right? Is that uh, the definition, the basic definition of migration? Not necessarily. We often think of that, especially when we're sitting in Western economies or in global North societies, we often think about migration and immigration processes as ones of people resettling and moving to another place. But there are a variety of ways that people migrate and reasons that they migrate and processes that they go through. I'm particularly interested in work migration, people who migrate for work, but people may migrate for a variety of other uh, reasons as well. Um, and in this context, as well as in others, people do go to resettle and work in other places and set up new lives, integrate, immigrate, attain citizenship eventually, and perhaps that is the goal for, for many. But there's often, a, there's also many other ways that people migrate and many of those ways are temporary and that's particularly evident in labor migration so people go abroad to work but for a temporary period of time on a temporary precarious kind of a contract and we think that maybe this is not that popular or maybe it's only popular in particular places like the countries that i work on in particular gulf countries but it's actually a really large and growing space of migration. So a recent ILO, International Labor Organization report, showed that temporary migration has been growing in the last decade quite significantly. And also that these forms of migration in many ways open up or expose migrants to a variety of more dangerous conditions or the possibility of exploitation in their migration. And so this ILO report suggests that around 50 million people worldwide are in conditions that they describe as modern slavery. This is interesting, especially because you're talking about labor-based or, or labor-induced migration. What I find interesting is that I have lived outside my home country multiple times. That being said, I've never, and probably also other people around me, never considered myself a migrant. So, you know, I was called an expat. And Crystal, I don't know where you're from originally, but if you're not Dutch, then you're also living outside your home country. Presumably you have lived in other places as well. So why is it that we have different terms for different, I would say, levels or types of uh, migration and that we always seem to, at least in the non-scientific use of the word migration, seem to associate the term with lower socioeconomic type of movement, people movement? Yes. Yeah, that's an that's an excellent question, Matthias. And 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 you're right. Maybe you notice from my my accent, I'm not a Dutch a Dutch national. I'm also a migrant. I'm an immigrant worker here in the Netherlands. I'm from Canada originally, but I have lived and and worked in many countries around the world before moving to the Netherlands. And in the Netherlands, I am considered a kennismigrant, which is a knowledge migrant or a knowledge worker, which is a particular category of high skilled worker that comes with a certain set of knowledge, expertise, and training. And so there's there's a couple of things that influence, I think, the public or the popular discourse around migration. And one is, is skill level and the associated values that we attach to different forms of education, skills, or performance of, of work. But another one, and I think the very significant explainer there, is 
really how racial capitalism and discrimination work. So in, I think in academic terms and in my own work, we use the terms of immigration and migrant worker to describe workers across all skill levels. And we may also use expatriate to describe workers of all skill levels. But I think in popular discourse, expatriate is often associated with white workers that are working abroad, so workers primarily from global north countries and workers that are coming from different socioeconomic classes or different racial ethnic backgrounds often get called migrants or migrant workers. And I think this is a form of popular discourse, particularly within within uh, Western societies that is really influenced by legacies of colonialism and how racial capitalism functions. Now, you mentioned, and we'll get to that in a moment, that many of those who migrate or have migrated, they face difficult conditions, use the word slavery, which, of course, is a pretty dismal situation. Now, what is interesting about this is that usually one would assume that these people obviously did not migrate because they expected to find a, a worse situation than at home. I suppose that it was quite the opposite, right? Otherwise, they could have stayed at home, but they migrated because they were expecting a better life, uh, better socioeconomic conditions, better income possibilities. Why do you say that uh, apparently often this goes so terribly wrong, to try to use a, a neutral term without necessarily putting blame immediately on, on someone? But why is it that people migrate in hopes of finding a better life, but what they actually find, according to what you said, is something that is maybe worse than what they had at home? Yeah. And not always, of course. Sometimes people experience, have, you know, fine enough experiences, but often, and especially when they migrate under forms of temporary, migra in temporary migration regimes. So in guest worker programs, seasonal agricultural worker programs, or in the Gulf region, what's become known by the Arabic term kafala systems. And I'll, I'll talk about that. One of the reasons has to do with that fragmented nature of migration governance that I mentioned at the beginning, and I'll get to that. Another reason has to do with also how we we, we think about and talk about migration and um, also the embedded hopes, I guess, that drive people, that, well, the drivers and the pullers that encourage migration processes and flows in general. Um, and one way that, you know, so, you know, one of the questions connected to what you asked is why has temporary migration become increasingly popular? Why do you see more and more people moving across borders in search of work, especially when you hear more and more dismal stories about exploitation, about abuse, about dangerous situations? And one of the, you know, some scholars and policymakers argue something they call the, the triple win scenario. And that is that, you know, everyone wins from this kind of process. And this is what makes it um, uh, popular. The labor receiving country or the host country, the destination country wins because because they get you know, cheap workers who can boost productivity and growth in the economy. The sending country or the home country of the migrants win because they collect remittances, the money that migrants send, send home to their, to their families and communities. And then they also have a lower like employment, welfare burden. And then the migrant wins because they earn a higher income or gain new experiences by working abroad, for example. But this kind of a positive sum argument Maybe it facilitates migration and maybe it, it does explain some of these 
push-pull dynamics, but it also ignores some of these broader situations that come up. And it ignores disparities among workers based on their immigration status. It ignores some of these racial hierarchies in the, in the global workforce that we were talking about uh, just a moment ago. Um, I think really temporary migration regimes proliferate because it is big business. Employers, recruiters, governments, they all benefit from a global labor market and these global labor market structures that facilitate the flow of workers, but also then allow or ease the exploitation of workers for less money. The argument you mentioned is this win-win or triple-win even situation is that basically, at least theoretically, migration is a good thing, right? So job opportunities, they're not equally distributed around the globe. You mentioned agriculture, certain agricultural products that just grow in particular areas, so they, they can't really be moved easily. And the argument usually of people who argue in favor of labor migrations is that, yes, maybe these people are not treated as well as, you know, they theoretically could, but at least they're better off than wherever they came from. Because otherwise, unless they're being cheated, which I guess also happens, but if they get what they promised, then, you know, they knew ahead of time that what they were getting into and they probably as rational beings decided that it was still better than the conditions in their home country and i understand you know that one of the your areas of expertise is obviously the gulf migration so a lot of people i think come from india from bangladesh from those areas uh, so One could argue, and I pose this as a question, if they know what they're getting into, and I assume there is some kind of information flow, a lot of people seem to decide that as bad as it may be, it's still better than what they have at home. Yeah, I think that's a common um, argument. And, and, and what I'm saying is not an argument against uh, migration or, or uh, labor migration and, and work migration. Um, I think there should be labor flow should be allowed, facilitated, the hu human mobility should be allowed and facilitated. And a lot of the constraints and the barriers that we erect are, you know, arbitrary constructs that have evolved over time. But um, I think also thinking in those terms and trying to maybe justify the, the, you know, people are still going because it still looks better and they have the better opportunities. I think that's in some ways a low bar um, explanation. I think we can hold ourselves as individuals, as migrants, as employers, as, you know, individual social actors or global citizens. We can hold ourselves to a higher account and try to encourage better processes and better conditions and more equal just conditions for labor at all skill levels and in all places. And I think that kind of, a, I mean, consciousness and awareness of international labor conditions can better facilitate advocacy for labor rights, for migrant rights and for migrant workers' rights globally, and also for solidarities between, you know, workers within a certain country and workers in other countries or migrant workers coming into the country in which you are living in. When you say that we should be held to higher standards as government, as employers. What are the, the most common things that you would 
suggest should be enhanced? Is this about the salary level? Is this about some other legal rights? Is this about, I don't know, uh, health insurance, uh, safety maybe, work safety at dangerous places? So what are the, the main issues that you say in a lot of countries, uh, these migrant workers, temporary migrant workers are not being treated in the way they should? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think in some ways, the answer is all of the above. But in some of ways, the answer is also contextually specific, right? In different occupations, different fields, different cities, countries, spaces, the, the specific complaint might vary and be different. But in general, what we see is a global trend toward devaluing labor and reducing the cost of employing uh, workers. So part of the reason, I mean, you know, this was a conversation we had a lot in the 1990s with globalization, with factories relocating to cheaper global south locations. And in that case, capital or companies, multinational companies were moving businesses to other um, offshore places where labor was cheaper, environmental regulations were less strict. Now what we also see, or increasingly, not that we didn't see it before, increasingly we also see labor moving to other places to fulfill jobs under particular forms of labor migration regimes or governance uh, procedures that allow them to go but be paid uh, and treated differently from other workers within the same economy. That is part of the largest challenge there. There are inequalities embedded within this system of flows of workers across borders. And to kind of understand how that works, it's helpful to think about how migration governance itself transpires and occurs globally, but also across different spaces, which brings me back to the original, I guess, question. We were talking about the migration governance complex. What is that? Who are those actors? I think thinking through some of that, maybe by following a migrant worker and thinking through some of the um, d dilemmas and, and processes that they go through when they migrate for work, um, helps us understand these different layers and, and the, the possibilities for these exploitative conditions to occur when they do. Where do they emerge? Where do these gaps in governance come from and why are they there? You work a lot on uh, the Gulf states, as we've mentioned. You edited this book and, of course, a lot of the immigration or the, the migration that happens towards the Gulf comes from South Asia. But what are other areas of the world where there is a lot of labor migration? I think in the U.S. probably from Latin America to North America. But what other areas in the world do we see a lot of flows Everywhere. <laughs> there are labor migration flows in all sorts of places, and depending on different geopolitical, economic, environmental conditions, this might ebb and flow at different times. Um, a lot of our discussion of migration tends to focus on uh, global north destinations. So you think you mentioned North America, so primarily uh, immigrants or, or even workers uh, moving from the southern part of North America or South America up towards the United States and Canada. We also think about migration to Western European economies from North Africa, from Turkey over time, right, with the guest worker programs in the 1950s and onwards, and also within uh, European spaces. And a lot of migration uh, focus has been on 
south-north migration or from countries considered uh, lesser developed to more developed economies. But in the last several decades, we see that south-south flows have been increasing dramatically. And the region that, that I look at is actually one of the largest labor migration corridors after migration to North America and Western Western slash Northern Europe, one of the largest flows is those from South and Southeast Asia to Gulf countries. So an, an Asian migration flow, if you will. But you also see inter other inter-Asian flows as well, which are quite large within Southeast Asia and across East Asia, etc. Now, when we talk about the Gulf states, and uh, I understand the difficulties there, but those are migrant streams that are encouraged basically by the the host countries the gulf states because they need the labor force so they're just essentially very small in terms of of citizens and in terms of the numbers so there's also obviously a large part of western migrants they are probably then called expats but they're also migrants but there are other countries where immigration is uh, highly controversial and i mentioned europe as as one of course that is the destination of a lot of uh, immigration or immigration attempts And in most uh, European countries, this is obviously highly controversial. And there is a lot of discussion is not so much about how to take advantage of these people, maybe, or to exploit them. But there is a lot of discussion about how to keep people out. Right. So it's it's very controversial. Why is that? On the one hand, we you say, you know, these countries take advantage of uh, cheap labor. On the other hand, there's also a lot of discussion on how we can erect borders or walls or whatever to keep people out. Is that uh, a contradiction that is um, due to differences in roles in society? So there is uh, employers and employees. Is it a cultural thing? Is it just uh, something that has to do with, I don't know, xenophobia or blatant racism that a lot of people in many countries just don't want to have any foreign or foreign looking people uh, within their, their borders? Well, that's a, that's a big, uh, that's a big question. But, and I think some of the answer is a bit of, a bit of everything, but I think really politics intervenes there. Others or the construction of others within national borders is also, is often a political, it's a political tool within uh, governments and societies. It's easier to blame others for certain economic and political outcomes or use precarious people as scapegoats within the discourse. And it can become quite quite popular. We've seen lots of examples you've mentioned in the region in which we're sitting right now. But this is not necessarily that different from the region that I also study. There are some differences, certainly. But I think these, and there's differences because of political regime as well and how politicians may or may not use discourses. Um, but there are some similarities in some of, so we often think of Gulf countries as particularly wealthy, oil wealthy spaces where you just have a bunch of rich citizens and too few of them. And so the discourse is you have to import all workers at all skill levels to do everything. And that's not quite accurate of, of, of reality, especially now where you have a very educated dispersion, but a very educated local uh, workforce that can fill in uh, lot, lots of jobs. There is still a high demand for uh, lots of labor from abroad, but there's also a number of countries, uh, three especially within the region, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and Oman, 
who have a large uh, citizen workforce that has high levels of unemployment, especially young, uh, young citizens. And so some of these discourses about migrants taking our jobs um, are fairly similar. And some of these xenophobic rhetorics around migrant workers taking positions that we could take um, are also in practice there. But similarly, in many cases, especially around low and middle skilled work, so physical manual labor, these citizens and migrants are not actually competing for the same kinds of jobs. Um, and partly this is due to uh, the pay differential between how much a citizen would be willing to work for or how much or, or and also what minimum wages are and whether minimum wages are enough to sustain uh, work and whether or not a migrant worker is eligible for the national minimum wage or more and often and this is what we see in the in migration governance to the gulf um, migrant workers are paid according to their reservation wage at home. And so maybe they would, and that's one of the drivers that we talked about before. So maybe they would make less money working in their home country. So they move abroad to earn a higher income, but that income and that wage may be below a minimum wage that only applies to citizens. That's the case in, in many of the Gulf countries or that minimum wage in the case of Qatar, who's reformed, that minimum wage is, is way below what a citizen would be willing or able to feasible to, to work for. And so part of, uh, of the discourse is, is, is politics, right? And part of the discourse has to do with these, you know, kind of economic realities. I think part of the complexity of that complex may also stem from the fact that we're simultaneously talking about normative or ethical things, you know, how we should treat people, but also about economic realities and economic necessities, basically, or driving forces. So um, in that respect, and this is a discussion that, for example, we're having in Germany, or we have had it for, for a long time, about immigration, where Germany, as I suppose you know, is a country that has had immigration for a long time, but has only fairly recently come to the, um, the conclusion that it's in fact a country of immigrants. So until relatively recently, maybe 15, 20 years ago, official policy was always that uh, Germany was not a country of immigrants, despite the fact that you know, Turkish immigration had happened in the, in the 50s and 60s and so on and so forth. But still, there is a lot of political discussion whether it would make sense to, on the one hand, have a bit more of a relaxed, open attitude towards immigration, accepting immigration as something that is necessary and good, while at the same time also move away a little bit from normative questions, you know, who is the most worthy or vulnerable individual towards uh, something like a score system where you would have a system in place that would very rationally determine what are the shortages uh, of the country, in which areas do we need a workforce, and then make sure that those particular needs are met first and foremost. And I'm not quite sure, but I think Canada also has something that goes into that direction. What do you say? Is that something that is okay? Is that acceptable to say, well, first and foremost, we are, as a country, we are going to look at uh, what we need and we're going to make sure that we attract those skilled forces, workforces that we need while keeping others out? Or is that something that you say from an ethical perspective is not acceptable and you basically have to make sure that if you open up, everyone has to have at least theoretically 
the same chance of getting into the country. I mean, I think, again, this kind of a question goes, I think it's very difficult to separate normative from economic drivers. These intersect and influence each other. And so if you take a kind of technocratic governance approach to say, well, we'll do things these ways and we'll make these kinds of hierarchies and points which determine which workers we want, need, or consider most valuable, you're still making particular types of choices based on particular types of norms and needs, right? So yeah, Canada has a has for a long time had a merit-based uh, system, which looks for a variety of skills and education level that gives you more points in your immigration system. But they also have other tiers of immigration systems for uh, to fill particular labor labor needs as well. Yeah, I wanted to go back to one point that you were that that, that you made because you referred to the the German migration system and the history of migration are not considering yourself a migration country. And this is interesting because this is also like a normative way of thinking about or describing a country. Now, country countries like Canada and America maybe describe themselves as an immigrant country rather than settler colonialist country, but they describe themselves as an immigrant-based uh, country. And it changes the discourse slightly or in some ways. But it's interesting um, because we might, from the outside, look at Gulf countries, this is a migrant country, but they might not consider themselves that way because it's a form of temporary migration without very many or almost no paths to permanence and citizenship. And then even in, and this is uh, similar to the legacy of the German situation, which a lot of these migration flows originally came as part of temporary guest worker programs. But what the German experience showed as well, there's nothing so permanent as temporary migration. And these kinds of, of regimes evolve over time. Now, I'm not an expert on, 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 on European migration, but I do look at it comparatively a little bit. Um, but I think these kind of discourses about forms of migration, identity of being an immigrant country or not an immigrant country, um, ways of regulating economic migration and flows, these are all in some ways also an intersection of ethical and economic questions and choices where politics intervenes quite dramatically. So I think it's yeah. it's useful. I mean, for, for me, what I like to do when I talk about migration governance is look at um, not just the political interventions, that's important, but also the different actors involved. So if you, if, and, and it's useful maybe for, for our listeners to think about, well, what is the migration? Grint themselves. What's their experience? How do they? Not everybody thinks very much, and even we, uh, we as in like citizens in a immigrant receiving country, don't always think about what processes are involved in in migration when people go and people deciding to migrate. But what do they have to navigate? Is it simply I found a job and I'm going to go, or what are the other processes and what are the opportunities and who's advocating for them, against them? What kind of mechanisms are facilitating or hindering? the flow of labor it's interesting you said that uh, you know these ethical economic forces and also the way a country sees itself they kind of intermingle and i find that quite interesting because germany and i would say most european countries don't traditionally see themselves as immigrant countries although most of them are to one extent or another whereas the us and canada because of their founding myth have a different kind of political uh, folklore of, of sorts. Now, in reality, things are much more complicated because also the U.S. obviously, you know, it, it did not stop them from uh, setting up a, a border or a wall at the border with Mexico to try to keep immigrants out. Uh, I don't know about the Canadians. Uh, 
Canadians tend to manage to look nice uh, most of the time, but I think probably policies are then also not that that clear cut as they they may may seem. But I want to get to one uh, segment, uh, Crystal, that we have in our podcast. A bold prediction: the world in ten years. So my question to you is, what do you think when we look at migration? globally labor migration how do you think the world will look like in 10 years from now okay i like the question so i have a bold prediction but in some ways it's a prediction which also draws on trends and trajectories that we see right now and uh, and we've kind of pointed to in our discussion now that in some ways there's lots of heterogeneity in, in labor regimes and governance of migration regimes around the world, but there's also lots of similarities and some common trends that we see across these global spaces. And I think there's three ongoing but also intersecting trends that will impact the future of work and the future of migration for work, and that these are social capital and technological trends and innovations. So on the first one, we, we see different forms of transnational social pressure. And that's what I expected to talk a little bit more about. So we see different forms of transnational social pressure and social actors um, pressuring governments, businesses, international organizations and consumers. And these affect regulatory reforms, they affect consumer preferences, and they affect ways of mobilizing. And what I hope to see in the, in the longer duration is new forms of transnational global, global solidarity emerge across these spaces. Uh, I could have spoken more about transnational migration advocacy networks that look for better conditions for migrant workers across spaces and how they pressure these different levels of, you know, states, but also international organizations to improve governance regimes. So on the one hand, I think we're going to continue to see these evolving forms of transnational social pressure that impact business and also government choices around that space. But secondly, and this is a trend I pointed to, business actors, such so employers, recruiters, those who are in the business of migration or employing migrant workers, um, they consistently pursue cost advantages in labor supply. They prioritize profit. It comes as no surprise for business actors. So, And even when they then pursue initiatives like corporate social responsibility aimed at targeting concerns around labor or environmental degradation, we see that they ultimately pursue this with a view of their bottom line. So they're pursued if they might affect their business model. And I expect this kind of a trend to continue. So, And these intersect. They'll be more social pressure, but there's still this underlying capitalist logic, profit-driven logic that drives businesses that employ migrant workers. And then third, and this is the, the, the even more future, but also future is now <laughs> prediction, work in more and more sectors is increasingly precarious and more and more work but also task assignment in work is determined by algorithmic management. So meaning in addition to the future of automation that we are talking a lot about now, we also see that the the future of work allocation is already AI driven. And so this new technological landscape around work in the next 10 years will be impacting us even more. 
But this intersects with this other trend that most precarious work that we see is often filled by migrant workers, meaning that this precarity associated with digital platforms is another layer on top of the insecurity associated with migration status. So I think these are broader developments that characterize current transformations of labor and migration, labor and capitalism, um, and then how labor and migrant advocates will continue to mobilize to pressure governments and businesses around uh, labor and human rights will be an interesting thing to observe over the next decade. Very interesting. And I mean, as a, a business-focused uh, podcast uh, hosted at a business school, I have to come out a little bit in defense of uh, capitalism, I, I guess, because you could also turn this around, right? You could also say that uh, capitalism is, in fact, the greatest uh, enabler of um, of uh, economic improvement for, for great amounts of people. And uh, if I may cite one example, that is not necessarily cross-border migration, but if you look at China, for example, which politically is not a democratic country, of course, but it employs at least a certain degree of capitalist logic since it opened up in the starting in the late 70s. You can arguably say that this has been the greatest alleviator of poverty by helping people to not move across borders, but migrate internally from the countryside to the centers of economic development on the mostly on the coasts of China that have lifted millions and millions of people out of poverty, probably to the degree that it helped more than uh, most other development aid or development cooperation programs that were set up by the UN and uh, by, by Western countries. So you could also see capitalism as a force uh, for, for good that uh, enables larger degrees of population in many countries access to, to economic benefits. Um, sure, I think you can make that argument, and there's a lot of you know research, of course, which talks about the developmental kind of outcomes that have happened through industrialization and developmental processes that created the kind of development that we understand as development in very, I think, uh, linear terms. And um, Chang, I forget his first name right now, writes about this in the context of Asia. He talks about it as a continent of labor and he says, yes, you know, capitalist-driven economic development has created lots of opportunities to bring uh, people into forms of wage labor. But at the same time as these processes have happened, it's driven them into forms, different forms of poverty, right? As businesses grow and look to improve their bottom line, that's the part that the critique that I'm that I'm bringing here. If you're always pursuing profit, you're always pursuing ways to save money, you're always looking for ways to extract surplus value or extra uh, income out of the workers that are producing the value and the profit that your company is, is creating. And you see this has happened in the development of Asia as it's pushed into these modern industrialized forms of economic development. You see increasing and new forms of precarization uh, intersecting with that. So that's something that we need to focus on, I think, and target when we think about labor rights and labor regimes. There's a book published quite some time ago, you probably know it, by Yaktish Bhakwati in Defense of Globalization, uh, where he mentions, and I know that there's a lot of things that you can probably criticize about the book, but one of the things that he mentions is uh, the uh, textile industry in Bangladesh, yeah, where a lot of young women are employed under conditions that are probably far from ideal, absolutely. But what he says is that, and this is the argument that I tried to make earlier, is that compared to the situation that these young women faced before that, usually in their villages where they were living before, were infinitely 
worse than the situation they are now, where they are, for the first time, many of them were earning their own money, money that they could keep. So it's also kind of a, a, a question of gender uh, gender balance, gender equality, which they didn't in the in their villages where they were forced to live under conditions of subsistence, where they had probably very little say in terms of economic decisions in their household, reproductive rights, and so on and so forth. So these young women, as little as they earned, you know, they compared to the situation before that, it was much, much better. Yeah? And they were not forced because, you know, they were not dragged out of their villages and put into one of these factories. They did that voluntarily. And sometimes... And the impression is that we're perceiving things also from an angle that uh, seems like things are always getting worse. And, and that I find questionable, at least. Well, you know, I think this is a, an interesting point of, uh, of discussion and departure, but it goes back to one of my earlier responses because it was the same kind of, you know, the drivers of migration, the drivers of joining a wage labor uh, workforce. I think if we're talking about how to improve conditions of workers uh, within the system that we're looking at, it's a low bar to say, well, it's better than they were before. Why can't we push for better conditions for these workers? So maybe he uses this example. Now women were working, earning their own income. Studies show that women who have their own income have more financial independence and they can make different types of choices for their lives, for their families, et cetera, et cetera. But you also know since, I think since the publication of that book, we had this dramatic collapse of the factory, a garment factory in Bangladesh that raised the consumer awareness of these poor working conditions that um, exist in developing countries like Bangladesh, where workers are working in these really unsafe conditions. And the reason that companies are producing the clothes that we wear here in these places is because the labor is cheaper, the conditions are not as stringent, and there's lots of savings to be had. And so when we hear about these conditions and we draw attention to these labor conditions, I think that's where consumers, labor rights advocates, migrant rights advocates, etc., can then mobilize to put pressure on those involved to improve those kinds of conditions. So I think it's it, that's what I meant by saying it's a low bar to say, well, it's better than it was before. Capitalism improved things a little bit. Let's leave it like that. I like my cheap clothes. I think we can hold ourselves to a higher account and look for, you know, if we we're talking about within the, system, within the system that we're living and operating within, we can look for ways to improve these kinds of outcomes. So you're talking specifically about labor, but within the migration space that I that I study, most of the organizations within South and West Asia that are dealing with rescuing migrant workers or improving the conditions of migrant workers when they get into negative conditions, they're not trying to stop migration. They're not trying to prevent it or say it's a bad thing. In fact, they want to facilitate it along with the the idea of the Global Compact for safe, regular and orderly migration. But they want to do so in the way which is safe, orderly and regular and where people's work and the value of their work is respected, where they get paid a fair wage for the kind of work that they do under conditions which are safe, respectful, etc. Understood, and I, I grant you that, that uh, better is uh, sometimes not enough. And of course, this is also often used as an argument for not doing more than absolutely necessary. Executive Briefing, what you should read now. And there we ask our guests to suggest one, two, three 
readings, journal articles, books, whatever it may be that our listeners can go to if they want to learn more about the issue that we have been discussing here. So what would your suggestions be? Okay, well, I have a couple of, I mean, I have a really long list. People can write me if they're interested, but I have a couple of suggestions. And the first one would be to pro promote my own recently co-edited book that you mentioned, The South Asia to Gulf Migration Governance Complex. And I think your listeners with an interest in, in South Asia would be interested in this volume in particular because the empirical cases are looking at the migration corridor from South Asian countries to, to Gulf countries. Um, but it also sheds light on these processes within the global migration governance. And another one is a book that I've read recently, which is very interesting, and it's, it's by Moritz Elton Reed. It's called The Digital Factory, The Human Labor of Automation. And I think that puts into perspective a lot of these trends on technological innovations, but also on the increasing precarization of, of, of workers more broadly so i would i would suggest that and maybe finally and, and this is one that's just come to me now there's an article that i wrote that looks at nursing migrants in particular and those that are coming from south from india in particular to the gulf i'm looking at the india to oman corridor and this helps i think un, uh, explain the migration governance complex from the perspective of a particular skill class of labor so you're saying how does it look different for people in different contexts we often think about construction workers or do or domestic workers as particularly exploited We think about advisors and engineers as a particular higher class of labor that migrates, and we might call them different different terms. But what about a sector like nursing and healthcare? And so it talks about how different levels or different forms of labor and how we value it matters, but it also shows the experience of how do nurses, when they migrate, who do they in interact with, the recruitment agencies, the processes, the other migrants in other countries that encourage them to come and give them advice, and also when if they get into a difficult situation, who do they go to to advocate on their behalf? How do they acquire and attain their rights from their employers or from the government in which they're working from? So it kind of fleshes out that story, that process through a, through stories. And uh, that is in a, a volume by Margaret Walton Roberts on uh, healthcare migration um, globally. Excellent. Thank you very much. We'll put the links to those three titles in our show notes. Readers can go there, find them there. And obviously, if that is not enough, they can always reach out to you and get the long list of uh, more material to read. Absolutely. We've come to the end of this episode. Crystal, thank you very much for this interesting, dynamic conversation. Thanks for being a guest here today. Thanks, Matthias. This was another episode of the Business Diplomacy Today podcast. This podcast is presented by the Indo-German Center for Business Excellence. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe to it on your favorite podcasting platform. And of course, we would also be delighted if you would leave a review or a rating there. And you can also go to our website at businessdiplomacy.today to check out the show notes of this episode. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.